House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Um, he has the underground bunker at TonyOrtega.org, and uh, he's uh, written a, a book that's uh, come out that's called Unbreakable Miss Lovely. Now, uh, this is how the Church of Scientology tried to destroy Paulette Cooper. And uh, mm. I've been listening to it. Great, great book. Um, uh, Tony Ortega, so welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, guys. Um, well, you, it's our honor. I, I can't believe, I, you know, I've been, I, um, of course, saw you in, in Going Clear and, a, and the um, and a part in the uh, Remini series. Uh, now, listening to this book, this is this is quite an um, quite a novel. This isn't just about Scientology. You took it right from how she was uh, born and, and living in uh, under Nazi occupation, and uh, hmm. that was amazing. Uh, tell us a little bit about the book. Sure, thanks. Well, you know, I've been writing about Scientology since 1995, so more than 20 years, and uh, for the Village Voice, for various publications. Um, and I got to know Paulette over those years. She had, she was one of the first people to write a book about Scientology. Her book came out in 1971. It was called The Scandal of Scientology. And, you know, when you, when you write about Scientology, you, you often are asked, well, aren't you worried about what they do to journalists? Have you ever heard about what they did to Paulette Cooper? I mean, everybody kind of knew this basic story that, that, that they had really retaliated against her in just incredible ways. Uh, I think everybody kind of knew what Paulette had been through. Um, so I got to know her over several years, and I was I wanted to really write a book about something. I was looking for a subject. Uh, Janet Reitman had come out with her book about Scientology um, in 2011, and then Larry Wright, uh, I knew, was turning his uh, New Yorker article into a huge history of the Church of Scientology. So I knew I, did, I didn't want to do something like they had. I didn't want to try to write a whole history of the whole church, I knew I needed to find a particular story to tell. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought that Paulette's story would really be more of a novel, like you say, it's more of a narrative. And the other the reason I got interested in telling her story was the more I looked into it, the more I realized that although all of us sort of thought we knew the story, the details were actually much more interesting than what was online. And, and, and I'll you know, she and I started talking about things, I realized that there were parts of her story that she'd never really nailed down. And that's what made me so so interested in, in telling her whole story. She, uh, We actually met for the first time in New York back in uh, 20, uh, late 2011. And she told me that, for example, that she and her sister were still trying to figure out how they had survived the Holocaust. They didn't know. And so that was one of the first things we did in our project was we set out to find out how these two little girls who would have been only about three and one and a half years old managed to survive. And, and we, you know, the, the, one, the one good thing about the Nazis is they were amazing bureaucrats. So from a, historic, a historian's perspective, that's very useful. And uh, so they, they kept incredible records. And we actually found records of Susie uh, and Paulette in, the, in a, a transport camp in Belgium. And the record of the train they were supposed to be sent to Auschwitz on. Uh, in July 1943, they were supposed to be on a train. Their parents had already been sent to Auschwitz and were killed. Oh, and 
and that was so that was before them. So they were already orphans. They were scheduled to be on the train that was leaving the Mechelen transport camp in Belgium uh, near Antwerp and was going to be going to uh, Auschwitz where they would have been killed in July 43. But then in August 43, there's a notation of them in a Belgian orphanage. So something had happened that allowed them to escape not being on that train. And we got so lucky. We found a family in Belgium that still had memories of the girl's parents and actually had some artifacts of theirs and photographs to prove that they were telling the truth. And they told us that what had happened was that their parents had some very good friends who were unable to save uh, their, you know, uh, Paulette's mother and father, but they did everything they could to save the little girls. And basically what they did was they just raised cash and black market goods. And it turns out that the, the, the commandant of that particular uh, concentration camp and transport center was a notoriously corrupt Nazi named Philip Schmidt. And he was so corrupt that by the summer of 43, he was already slated to be transferred. Even the Nazis realized he was a disaster. And um, apparently, they raised enough money and black market goods to bribe this guy, and he let the two girls go. So that's how they survived. And eventually, Paulette was then adopted by uh, the Coopers in New York in 1948. And uh, so she grew up in New York, in a, you know, a nice part of New York, and eventually she wanted to become a, a magazine writer. And she sort of stumbled onto the Scientology story. She was, um, she had been working in advertising with a couple of guys that she really liked, and they both got into Scientology, and they started saying bizarre things. One of them told her that he realized by, you know, one of the things about Scientology is you go back in the past to find out what your past lives are, and he had he had realized that he was Jesus Christ, right? <laughs> Oh, and, wow. and so uh, when Paulette told her other friend about this, and she said, you know, you're in Scientology, isn't this crazy? And she'll never forget that her friend said, well, maybe he is. And that's when she was, that's when she was just stunned, and she said, i got to look into this thing. And that's, when, that's what motivated her to start looking into Scientology, first as a magazine subject. Uh, that magazine article came out at the end of 1969, and then she turned that into her book, uh, the scandal of Scientology uh, came out in June 1971, but even when just the magazine article came out, I mean the re the way she even found out that the magazine article came out uh, was that she got two death threats the first day, and that was in December 1969, and it didn't let up. She was being harassed, surveilled, sued. Um, her phones were tapped. All all this happened, uh, the Church of Scientology threw all that at her from 1969 to 1985, 16 years. She came close to killing herself at one point. It's just an incredible tale. So I researched all of it, and there's actually a lot of documents, and I, I reached out to people that knew her at the time. This was not, I was determined that this was not going to be Paulette's memoir. It was going to be my history, and try, you know, there's stuff, in, believe me, there's stuff in there that she's not all that thrilled with, because... You know, she made some decisions that weren't great, but that's, I mean, she was a human being. You know, she was, she was under incredible pressure, and, and, and she, it's amazing that she survived it at all. I think, you know, you come out at the end of the book thinking, you know, she's really something, because she is. She's, she's an amazing person. Yeah, I was, <clears throat> I was totally captivated. I was, uh, wow. Um, can, I, can I ask, but back in the 60s, um, when she had her first experiences, uh, how was the Church of Scientology thought of in the public? 
um, weren't they kind of thought of as a new age kind of a, a good thing? It was it was definitely a counterculture movement, the thought of at that time. And um, if if people thought about it at all, it tended to have the reputation of being sort of a way to be sort of a hippie but without drugs. I mean, they were known for being, you know, non-drugs. They even used to put uh, stickers in bars in New York. I talked to a guy about this that said, after drugs, Scientology. So yes. they, 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 they attracted young people who uh, were trying to find alternative lifestyles at the time, and, and that was, of course, such a fervent period for people uh, trying new ways of thinking and like, acting. And, um, you know, people would go on a drug binge, or they, and, and they'd get tired of it. And then here was the Scientology saying, listen, we're going we're gonna to give you out-of-body experiences without drugs. Yeah. And that, really, that was really attractive. In the 60s, that was kind of their come on. In the 70s, they were more... They more pitch themselves as kind of a self-help group. You know, they they've always tried to change with the times. Um, but even in the '60s, word was getting out that that things were not all great about Scientology. And Paulette was just one of a number of different. I, one of the things I did was research that period about what other people were writing, and there were some really harsh magazine articles that came out at the time. Uh, uh, Life magazine even had a. Uh, Reporter infiltrate Scientology. I'm sorry that Alan Levy's mostly been forgotten today, but in 1968 he went almost to clear wow. uh, undercover as a reporter um, in order to write about the Church of Scientology. And there were other reporters doing really good things back then. It wasn't just Paulette Cooper, and most of them came out saying, "Look, this is a very controlling group. They're doing some very uh, you know questionable things." But none, none of the early books was as harsh as Paulette's. She, she was really focused uh, on the harassment people went through when they came out and the way um, auditors would take advantage of their subjects. Uh, it was an unrelentingly just uh, uh, you know aggressive book about who Hubbard was and what the, some of the crazier ideas were. And it was it was popular right off the bat. I mean, it was a paperback, so it was you know a little cheaper than some of the other books that had come out. And uh, but she got sued like everybody else. Every one of those early books were sued basically out of existence. Yeah. Can we can yeah. we talk about the harassment there? Um, uh, talking to Mike Rinder, and originally he left the church say, saying that um, uh, you know that that the church was was going away from L. Ron Hubbard's original. Um, focus, and he didn't like the way it was being run. Um, but back then, weren't weren't they um, still doing? They were still doing the same type of harassment in the '60s and '70s as they do now. So I don't understand what the difference is. Because uh, he well, let me yeah yeah well, let me just it's a preface by saying that Mike Rinder's views have changed over time, and I think I think it's important if you read his website to see how much more critical he is of L. Ron Hubbard today than a couple of years ago. And that's very natural. When when Scientologists leave, the, the Scientologists who are leaving the church today tend to blame David Miscavige for ruining things. Uh, and they tend to have a real, still, affinity for Hubbard. But come back six months, come back a year, talk to them again, and you'll see they go through kind of a progression where they, it kind of dawns on them that all the things that they were blaming Miscavige for, disconnection, um, uh, uh, the, the rehabilitation project force um, they were all instituted by Hubbard 
you know. Yes. And 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 if you look at the early, what my theory for it is that Hubbard was making money hand over fist uh, in the in the mid fifties, but people kept you know he kept at that time. Remember, early in the fifties, he was claiming this was a science, not a religion. Yes. And the nature of science is that if one person makes a discovery, that someone else in a different lab could repeat the results, right? And so if Elmer Hubbard really did discover something scientific about the human mind, then that other people could do the same thing. But of course, if anybody tried to leave Scientology and do it on their own, he would just go crazy. Well, the cynic would say because he's losing that income, right? And so in the 50s and 60s, he put in these really harsh rules about how to deal with breakaway groups. And he gave it this wonderful euphemism. He called it ethics, right? <laughs> it, just, it, really just means, it really just means control, okay? And he wrote all these rules about if somebody leaves, if somebody says anything about us, go after them, always attack, never defend. And he really, you know, David Miscavige today, no question, he, he enforces those rules at an extreme level. But it was Hubbard that really set those policies in place. Yeah. Yes, Tony, did, did he not, in 1953, didn't he institute the, the rule of fair game? I don't think it was that early. I think, I think fair game was first, uh, I think the first time he used those words was 66, actually. And, and then in 68 is when he formulated it in the way that we, is most famous, where he said that, uh, I can't say it from memory, but it's basically something like, if, if, if somebody has been declared an enemy by the church, that a Scientologist can sue them, trick them, uh, destroy them without any penalty. That yes. that I, I, it's, it's, it's close. It's something like that, and that's that's '68. Um, now that at the time Scientology was being investigated in several places, and one of the places was in New Zealand. And of course, they got a hold of that document, and they were like, "Look at this!" And so at that point, Hubbard put out um, a document saying that we're rescinding the use of the words fair game. But if you look closely at that document, it says, no, any policy about how to treat an SP is not changed. So in other words, he's basically saying, look, we're getting some trouble because of this harsh you know, policy called fair game. Let's not use the word fair game anymore. But he didn't change the policy. So if that's an important thing to keep in mind because there's no question they're still following the fair game policy today. And people like Mike Rinder are constantly being fair game. I've been through it. You know, it's just, it, it, they can't change. They This was baked into Scientology's DNA early on, and it's the only thing they know how to do. And they're damn good at it, if I might add. Well, their resources are spread kind of thin these days. I mean, at, at one time, I mean, nobody has gone through what Paulette went through. I mean, the 70s, and the other difference is, uh, Paulette and I have talked about this, I mean, they, they tapped her phone, they, they broke into her apartment, they, they actually, um, uh, the thing they got her indicted for was they got a, they, they got a, a fingerprint of hers. And some of her stationery. Uh, I think, I, I don't think that's true. I, I, don't think, I don't think the stationery necessarily came from her apartment. But they got her fingerprint on a piece of paper, typed up a bomb threat to themselves, mailed it to themselves, and then gave it to the FBI. The FBI believed them. Um, and uh, you know, confronted uh, Paulette and indicted her. She was facing 15 years in federal prison for trying to blow up the Church of Scientology. And it, 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 my book reveals for the first time how that prosecution was was basically uh, 
uh, derailed. And I got it because I got her attorneys at the time to talk for the first time. And she managed with some really good attorneys who, who talked the prosecutor out of it, managed to get that case uh, basically put on hold. And then a few years later, when the FBI raided the Church of Scientology in 1977, they actually found the documents talking about framing her. So that's when she was fully exonerated. But yeah, I mean, that back then, uh, some of the, and then, and then, you know, I, one of the things I think my book does that it reminds people of some stuff that they probably maybe never knew, they continued to run operations against her into the 80s. Uh, at one point, they actually had a private investigator pretend he was working for a millionaire who wanted to hurt Scientology, and they hired her to work for them, and then recorded everything she said for the next year. Um, I mean, just really amazing resources they threw at her. They must have spent millions and millions of dollars trying to destroy her life. Now, today, um, they, they claim that all those things done against Paulette Cooper in the 70s uh, was done by a group called it was done by a group called the Guardian's Office, and they claimed that that was a quote rogue unit, uh, which is so ridiculous because it's very clear. Not first of all, the Guardian's Office was under the control of Mary Sue Hubbard, Elron Hubbard's wife, and there's no question that Elron Hubbard knew all of what they were doing. So it's not a rogue unit. Second of all, it was replaced by something called the Office of Special Affairs, which was eventually run by Mike Rinder, and Mike Rinder will tell you. Yeah, instead of using these young true believers that were, you know, what the Guardian's office was made up of actual Scientologists, the OSA will hire pros, right? They hire private investigators, mm -hmm. they hire attorneys, so that it's like one one step removed. Uh, and and the and the idea was that they would no longer do anything illegal. Just yeah. you know, <laughs> except ex except that ten days after my book came out last year, I was contacted by the U.S. Attorney's office, and so was Mike Rinder. We found out that they were pro they were uh, sentencing. A private investigator to federal prison for trying to hack us, and he went to prison. So, and and the New York Times did did report that he was working for the Church of Scientology. So, you know, the church can say that the stuff against Paulette was by a rogue unit that they don't do illegal things anymore. But a guy just went to prison last year for Church of Scientology trying to do illegal hacking against Mike Rinder and me. So, really, things haven't changed that much. Well, what what is their end game in spending all of this time, money, and energy? Uh, following people, like even when you look at uh, the John Sweeney um, um, show and how they followed him around and all that, why are they spending so much time and money on this? You know, one of the key things to, to know about Church Scientology is that they leave all the thinking to L. Ron Hubbard, a guy who died 30 years ago. And they just they can't do anything different than what he instructed them to do in the 50s and 60s. Um, and so they're, you know, you're exactly right. Any other organization would say, hey, um, you know, this guy is suing us for a million dollars. Why are we spending $20 million to make that case go away? You know, why are we trying to, like, influence judges and harass people and get their attorneys disqualified when we could just cut this guy a check for a million, right? Uh, they never think that way because Hubbard always told them, always attack, never defend. And so, yeah, why are they following John Sweeney? Why are they, you know, trying to harass me? Why are they all constantly trying to disrupt Mike Rinder's life? Because none of it, I mean, all it does is make for good stories, right? It's not getting them anywhere. But they just, they, they're so robotic in following what Hubbard told them to do. And that's actually one of the things that I've always found most entertaining about them is, you know, this is, this is a totalitarian Cold War organization 
that's still operating in 21st century America. So now for the listeners, uh, they can put this into context then. Uh, it, maybe explain what the basic um, beliefs of Scientology are. Sure. L. Ron Hubbard uh, had this basic idea. Uh, well, let me, let me tell you what Dianetics is and then Scientology because they're different. The first thing he came up with was Dianetics. And in Dianetics, he had this idea. He was influenced by the, what he had read about early computers. And he had this theory that the human mind is like a computer, and it's got this perfectly recording ability, but um, that is messed up because we have a second half of our mind called the reactive mind that takes over when we've been knocked unconscious or when we've been traumatized. And that records things in a very um, simplistic way. So if you're, so for example, if you go through some kind of trauma like a car accident, uh, 10 years later, something that reminds you of that, maybe you were hit by a red Ford, 10 years later you see a red Ford, suddenly you have this terrible feeling of dread, it's because it's re-stimulating that earlier trauma. Um, and he, he actually claimed that this trauma called an engram was stored in the ectoplasm of your cells. But the most important engrams, the ones that were really messing you up in life, you experienced as traumas when you were a fetus in the womb. And if you could just go back and remember what you went through in your mother's womb 30, 40, 50 years ago and, and talk out those traumas to a person listening to you called an auditor, then you would neutralize their power over you and you would you'd be able to basically erase that reactive mind and just have that perfectly recording analytical mind. Hubbard, Hubbard believed that if you could go back and, and remove those harmful memories, you could be superhuman. He called it clear. If you were clear, you'd have total recall, higher IQ. Um, you'd have you'd have an immunity to disease. Okay, all these things he promised. And it, it, when you and if you read Dianetics, which I have at the very at the very beginning, he promised this in only twenty to a hundred hours of counseling. You basically become superhuman. So that book became very popular in the summer of nineteen fifty. Clubs sprang up all across America as people tried to help each other remember what they had gone through, not just in the womb, but as an egg or a sperm cell. Uh, that, and, well, and if, the, the, the theory is, is kind of plausible. So well, the, the, theory that, the theory that if you talk about your troubles to somebody who listens carefully, you'll feel better, there's no question that, that that's going to work, right? But, but the idea that um, you're... You know, and all the examples he used were basically that your parents had rough sex when you were in the womb, and it caused all these traumas to you that 30 years, I mean, they're really weird. They're very strange. And so you're supposed to go back and remember dad having rough sex with your mom while you were in the, you know, the womb. Okay? Oh. Very, very bizarre. Okay? That's what the book is. So that was very popular for about a year. And then, and then, and you can imagine that people sit down, talk about their troubles to somebody else, they feel better. It was basically a poor man's psychoanalysis, is what it was. And after about a year, it, it, the fad died out. He went bankrupt. He was in such bad shape that for a while there, um, he couldn't even use the word Dianetics. So when he regrouped and started over in '52, he had to come up with a new word. He called it Scientology. By that time, the people that were following him weren't satisfied just to go back to the womb. They wanted to go back farther. And that's what Scientology is, is to find those engrams, those traumas that are still in you that you picked up in previous lives. 
going back thousands, millions, billions of years. And along that way, in 5152, he picked up this uh, device called an e-meter, and all it measures, all it measures is skin galvanism. Okay, it puts a tiny current through your body, and it can be affected by the tiniest things, like grip, for example. And you're holding these cans, which you know introduces all kinds of variables. But they believe that the needle will help confirm when you when you say, oh, "Yeah, I seem to remember a million years ago, I was on the planet, you know, whatever." And oh, there goes the needle. That must be true. And so it helps. It helps the confirmation bias to convince you that the memory you just had of something that happened a million years ago really happened, okay? And I would tell you that the e-meter tells you nothing. But they, as long as they believe it, it's a very powerful device, right? And so that's that's the basic idea to Scientology is, is Hubbard then told them that you are an immortal being called a Thetan that has lived for quadrillions of years, countless lifetimes on other planets, other parts of the galaxy. And this lifetime is just one short one but it's your reactive mind that's keeping you from remembering that, that's keeping you from seeing your true nature. And so if you go through Scientology counseling, you'll erase the reactive mind, you'll go clear, then you'll go, uh, then you go through what's called the operating thetan levels, OT, until you have not only will be able to recall your entire, it's called your whole track, you'll be able to recall your entire track of existence, but you'll regain all of these superhuman abilities. I mean, now, he wasn't just promising like a raised IQ and and uh, uh, you know impervious to disease. I mean, operating things are supposed to leave their bodies at will with full perception, go around the world, affect matter, basically create universes. Okay, this is what he's he's basically uh, uh, promising all these superhuman powers as long as you go through all these steps and levels and courses. So at the beginning, when he first announced it in 1950, and you paid six bucks for his book. It took you 20 hours of counseling. By the 70s, it took dozens and dozens and dozens of courses and levels and thousands of dollars. And it kept getting more expensive and more levels added. So today, to get all the way from the very beginning course up to OT8, which is the top of their what they call the bridge, Mark Headley has estimated that the, the total cost in courses, donations, is up between half a million and two million dollars. Good Lord. Wow. And this is where they come up with the money for private investigators and, and everything else. And they pay the people that work for them next to nothing. So they're paying they're paying Sea Org workers between zero and fifty dollars a week. Um and they're they are tax exempt, so they pay no taxes. They have people paying a thousand dollars an hour for counseling and they have millionaires who give them big donations. So all that combined you can see why they now have several billion dollars. Now, now you can see where this this concept of Scientology would have been popular in the '60s, since everything was seen in such a spiritual aspect. And in the '70s, like you said, the, the organization seemed to evolve over time. But nowadays, they've got a lot of celebrities that are. You know, proclaiming the benefits of Scientology. <clears throat> Would you say that they're doing that willingly, or are yeah. they? I, I'm being careful with my language here. Sure. Are they being extorted by what they have revealed in these auditing sessions? Well, L. Ron Hubbard uh, announced Project Celebrity in 1955. I mean, he knew early on that. Uh, first of all, let's get something straight. Only a tiny minority of people have ever been interested in Scientology. 
Okay, this is not appeal to to most people. I mean, Scientology's real come on is uh, certainty, right? They, if you talk to Scientologists, longtime Scientologists, ask them how'd you first get in, they tend to tell you a story of how they were in a vulnerable part time in their lives. They'd lost a job, they, uh, their relationship had ended, they were uncertain about the future, and along comes Scientology, and they say, "Listen, we're going to help you unleash your full potential, and we have we can solve any problem." Now that wouldn't work with me. I don't know about you, but that I mean, it's, it's the world doesn't work that way. I'm not gonna you're not gonna convince me that if I fill out a couple of check sheets and take a couple of courses that it's gonna solve all the problems in my life. But there are a small a certain small number of people that that appeals to. They like the idea of certainty that if you pay the money, take the course, everything in your life is gonna be fine. And that's that's basically what they're selling. But Hubbard knew that you know once people got in. And they started to learn about his, you know, really funny ideas about the age of the universe and and Thetans and and all these crazy space opera stories. He used to tell them about how, you know, forty thousand years ago he was a race car driver on Earth. I mean, just crazy stuff. He knew that they needed they needed to keep all that under wraps for the most part and put kind of this, um, you know, a, a face on Scientology that wasn't weird. And so one of the things he did was he said, "Let's get celebrities in here," because he knew. That that would would normalize it, right? And yes. so they weren't really very successful at first. But by the seventies, by the mid seventies, they were getting pretty good. They opened up a celebrity center in Los Angeles. They were catering directly to actors and actresses. And so they got Travolta in seventy five. They got Ali in seventy nine. They managed to get Tom Cruise in eighty six. So in that period from seventy five to eighty six, they did pretty well at, at getting people in. Today they're not getting new big stars in. I mean, they, you know, uh, they uh, some stars have come and gone. The the young Scientology celebrities that you see, Elizabeth Moss, Erica Christensen, Bonnie Rabisi, these tend to be people who grew up in it, right? They're not recruiting people. It's, it's getting it's getting much more difficult because with the internet, it's really easy for people to find that weirder stuff, you know, and it's got a really bad reputation now because of all the controversies about abuse that have come out. So they're having a much harder time, and actually, I think the celebrity gambit is has begun to backfire on them because, yeah, for for years and years, the fact that they had celebrities was one of the the most uh, you know appealing things about it and how they roped a lot of people in. But then Jason Begay came out in 2008. He was the first actor to come out of Scientology and really badmouth it publicly. And then the, a year later, Paul Haggis came out. And he made a you know a, a noise, and then he ended up being in the New Yorker story, and then going clear, and then you know Leah Remini in 2013 she came out, wrote a book, and now she's got this series. Uh, you know the, the the celebrity thing at one point might have been Hubbard's like smartest thing he ever did, but now it's turning into a nightmare for them. And I know there are other celebrities that are on their way out too. You know, and, and we should say, like, the, the e-meter. So he actually tried to get that as an approved treatment for mentally ill people, didn't he? And that was sort of the issue, is they wouldn't approve him. Well, he, you know, they. If, the farther you go back, the more you see that Hubbard was making these um, health claims. I mean, at one time he claimed that all human ailments are psychosomatic, and so Scientology and its e-meter could, could heal you. And even to this day, they make health claims, but they're more careful about it. Because in 1958, the FDA uh, started to investigate them. See, back then, in the 50s, uh, the U.S. government took this stuff much more seriously about making 
outrageous health claims. Today, it'll get you a series on TV, okay? But back then, the government actually cared about quack health claims. And so they um, infiltrated Scientology, investigated it, and in 1963, they raided the church and, and confiscated a lot of e-meters. That case was in court for eight years, but they eventually, in 1971, settled, and Scientology agreed to put a disclaimer on each e-meter that says it is not a tool for diagnosing any medical condition. Okay, So they had to admit that, that it's not a medical device. But believe me, they still make health claims uh, in, a, in a more subtle way. And Scientologists, there's nothing uh, banning a Scientologist from getting Western medicine if they get sick, but Scientologists tend to be really into alternative treatments and resist getting proper care. And we're seeing a lot of them die of cancer these days. They're not, you know, some of them get the care they deserve, but, but I think Scientology encourages them to really mistrust uh, doctors. Well, if I can jump in here for just a second, I'm sorry, Alf, I just stepped on you. Um, I think that the value in the e-meter probably in the beginning was probably, you know, along with their doctrines. But today the value of it is not so much the health benefits or getting things off of your chest, but you... As a parishioner, you believe that this is actually working. The value in the e-meter is what you say during those sessions because it's all videotaped and audio recorded. So it's, it's material that they can possibly, you know, use against you. Just, just knowing what I've seen recently, would that be a fair assessment? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, when you, <clears throat> when you go through an auditing session and they ask you to talk about your innermost secrets, they're taking notes. You know, um, recently, I mean, there's a there's a court case in Los Angeles involving a young woman who's suing them for forcing her to have an abortion when she was in the C organization. And um, one of the things she wanted was, as part of her lawsuit, was she wanted to get her hands on those notes they took on her, right? And uh, the court ordered the Church of Scientology, yeah, turn over her folders to her, sure. Well, they went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court fighting that. And their argument was that, what you say in an auditing session is like what you say in a confessional in a Catholic church. Absolutely. And, well, no, not at all. Because in a in a Catholic in a Catholic confessional, it's you and a priest, and you're talking about things you've done, and that priest is the only person who hears it, and he writes down nothing. Okay, and. The priest is supposed to keep that secret no matter what, and then, of course, if you admit to a murder or something, then you really put the priest on the spot. But in Scientology's case, Laura was talking about her private life, talking about her innermost secrets, talking about getting this abortion. You have an auditor who writes it down. Scientology had to admit in court that 270 church officials looked at her file. Holy smokes. So instead of one priest who hears something from you and never writes a word down, in Scientology, you've got hundreds of people looking at your most private stuff. They're not equivalent at all. And, and sure enough, the, church, the court made them turn that stuff over. And what I've tried to point out to people is this attorney, Bert Deichsler, who works for the church, kept telling the California Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court, oh, the church can't turn this stuff over. It's religious material. It's intensely private you're violating the church's religious rights, right? So they finally were forced to turn over the documents. And what was in them? 
a note by a 12-year-old admitting that she missed her family, right? I mean, yes. it was disgusting. Uh, I, I wish that that attorney would face some kind of a, you know, uh, consequence for basically lying to the highest courts of the bar association. Yeah. Well, now, whatever they don't discover in audit uh, auditing sessions, then family members or friends, other members of the church, have to do what's called knowledge reports if they hear you speaking against the church. Yeah, Scientology is a snitching culture, and you learn that very early on as a child in Scientology. I mean, it's all about snitching, it's all about interrogations. And the reason you do it is that you're always worried that you're going to be snitched on, right? So if you see that Dad is watching the Leah Remedy show, you are obligated to write him up. And you can ask, I mean, Leah says it, oh, she used to write her husband up all the time. I mean, <laughs> it's, just, it's just built into their culture that, of course, if you see somebody doing something they're not supposed to, you report them. Well, what happens when somebody reports you? They pull you into ethics, and you're then put in an interrogation, and you're, you know, you're given the e-meter. But this is not an audit session. This is what's called a sec check, a security check, an interrogation. And now this device that, as a Scientologist, you believe is actually effective and can read your mind and knows when you're lying, now you're being asked incredibly private story, uh, questions about your. They always they're very hung up about sex. They assume that if you have done something wrong. It's because you have some secrets you haven't divulged, and they're probably sexual in nature. And so, this, you know, Scientology, so, you know, if you get turned in on a knowledge report, you may find yourself being interrogated. And what I just reported recently was that not only will you be interrogated about your sex life, was that that person interrogating you, and they're, they're very hung up on masturbation for some reason. They really want you to talk about all the ways that you masturbate and the, what you think about when you masturbate. And... The, you may find yourself being interrogated by a 14-year-old. I, I just talked to a guy named Serge Gill. That was, his, that was his job when he was 15 years old was to interrogate 35, 45-year-old men about their masturbation habits. Wow. And, yeah. and, and can I, uh, disconnecting, now that's, that's a big thing on the series that we see in A&E. So, so when you're writing up your spouse and family and stuff, you actually have to disconnect if they do something, if they step over the bound, I guess. They're really conscious about your status in the church. And uh, they're, you know, the Sea Org gets talked about a lot, but also the people that don't work for the church, they're just called publics. They have to worry about this, too. You know, are you in good standing with the church? You know, are you taking courses? Are you going to the events? Are you maybe on the edge? You know, they keep track of all this. Now, if as long as you're in good standing, everything's cool. But let's say that, you know, somebody in your family decides, I've had it with Scientology, I don't want to have anything to do with it, and they go online and they actually say something, even anonymously, about how, you know, Scientology is really bad. <clears throat> Scientology finds out about it, they'll call that person into ethics, they'll interrogate them, and then they'll kick them out. And the language they use is, you're declared a suppressive person. So anybody who knows that suppressive person, or SP, has to cut off all ties to them, or they risk losing their standing in the church. It, 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 even if it's your sibling, even if it's your parents. So, you know, the story that was told a couple of weeks ago about the Restorf family, for example, where um, Lois and Gary Restorf from South Africa had spent 30 years out of the church, but trying not to make waves, because they knew that this could happen, right? And so finally, for some reason, because they happened to know some SPs, they were kicked out themselves. They were declared SPs. They had two sons 
who were in Scientology. Now, those boys have a decision to make. <clears throat> do they stick by their parents and get kicked out of the church? Or do they stay in the church and lose all contact with their parents? Well, one brother told the, chose the parents. The other brother chose the church. And then those two brothers were separated. And, you know, and then there are all these consequences to that. I mean, it's, it's, that's, I'm really glad that Leah has focused on that aspect because the disconnection is, it's gotten worse and worse. Uh, you know, L. Ron Hubbard came up with this idea, but Miscavige has taken it to an extreme uh, where he's kicking people out of the church for almost nothing. And then put, that puts pressure on everybody they know and any family member they have. And, I, you know, I've, just had, I've talked to people that, you know, parents that haven't seen their kids in years uh, because their parents are following the law, that rule, that, that toxic policy. What do you think the end game is now? But uh, so, where do you see this series going? I know they've kind of made it look like um, they want to pursue it legally. Um, do you think that's possible? Well, there have been so many different legal uh, approaches to Scientology, and it's very, very difficult. Uh, Scientology has shown time and again that it has unlimited budgets for top-level attorneys who act completely cynically. And I, I think that, you know, ultimately the, the U.S. court system is kind of a good-faith justice system, and it's just not prepared. It's not really set up to deal with a bad actor like the Church of Scientology that will do anything to torpedo a lawsuit or ruin a person's life. And so I see time and time again lawsuits that look really smart. Okay, this is definitely going to you know, uh, expose Scientology's practices, and then Scientology finds a way to, you know, just make things just impossible for the people that are suing them. So if they're going to sue Scientology, man, they're going to really have to do their homework figure out what they're going to do. Um, another thing they might be doing is approaching members of the government. Um, I have no idea of the incoming administration, how they feel about Scientology at all. Uh, I have no idea if they'd be interested in, in, in you know, a pro, you know, the FBI or the IRS getting involved. I really don't know what Leah and Mike are going to do, um, and they're not. They're being very tight-lipped about it, and that's cool. But uh, yeah, I mean, they 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 went on television and said we're looking into this thing about doing something, and so now there's going to be some pressure on them to come through, you know. Well, Tony, if nothing else, what about human rights violations? Um, I was watching during the series that they were describing the hole where they would put you in a double-wide trailer with others. They wouldn't feed you. There were constant beatings. There was mental manipulation. And you had to stay here until you proved yourself worthy to come back out again. It, I mean, couldn't, couldn't they approach it that way somehow they did and, and uh, you know when when Mike Rinder got out of Scientology in 2007 he went to the FBI uh, I believe Debbie Cook talked to the FBI uh, Marty Rathman talked to the FBI uh, a number of people that were in that it's called the hole the prison there Tom DeVock Jefferson Hawkins uh, uh, I believe uh, John Bousseau also cooperated he actually helped put the bars on the windows um, all of this information was given to the FBI back when this information was fresher. Uh, and in 2009, 2010, the FBI came very, very close to raiding the international base. Keep in mind, the FBI did raid Scientology in 1977, the largest FBI raid in this country's history. 
and confiscated 100,000 documents, and 11 people ended up going to prison. And for most groups, that would be it. But Scientology is amazingly resilient, and they stayed in business. And now in 2009, 2010, it was getting very close to happening again. It got, they got so close to raiding the base. A couple different people that I've talked to that were, were talking to the FBI at that time, former church members, one of them had agreed to ride in one of the vans to help the agents identify people once they got inside. Another one told me that they had recorded the tail numbers on Tom Cruise's private planes in Burbank in case David Miscavige made for a run that way. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's how close they were, the FBI was, to raiding the base in 2010. Why didn't it happen? Well, you know, Mike Rinder will tell you that it was a bad idea to raid it anyway because it's just the, the problem law enforcement always has. It. There's two main problems that you know, people always ask me this. Why hasn't law enforcement done anything? Well, two main problems. The first problem is time, right? Uh, yeah, last the other night on last night on television, we heard about Debbie Cook's testimony. Debbie Cook actually gave that testimony in 2012, five years ago. She was actually in the hole in 2007, five years before that. So you know, a lot of time tends to go by before these people come forward. Mike Mike Rinder was in the hole, but it was in 2006. You know, I mean, 11 years ago. So it, 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 that's one of the main problems law enforcement has is that people tend to come forward only after a long time. The second problem they have is they know that if they went into the base, they raided the base, they went to where the hole was at that time, swung open the doors, said to the people inside, you're free, you're free to go, they might respond with, but we're free here. We're not, uh, we're not being held yes. Well, because like they said, they feel that they have done something to deserve all of this. Exactly, and that's a big, big problem for law enforcement because then you've got such a Scientology suing you for you know, unlawful intention or whatever. So uh, it's, it's a daunting... Mike, Mike had told me that what he'd much rather see is the, church, uh, the FBI build an obstruction of justice case against David Miscavige, something like that. Um, so maybe that's what he's talking to them about now. Who knows? But a raid is is problematic, uh, and I can understand why. Now, how is uh, Paulette Cooper? I mean, you've written the book, and uh, obviously you've talked to her and stuff. How is she dealing with life now after this this whole experience with the she's doing She's doing really great. She settled. Uh, they sued her 19 times, and, and, and they ran all those operations against her, but everything was settled in 85. She went really quiet for about a decade, and then in the 90s she started reaching out to people on the uh, online and, and, you know, reached out to me as a reporter. Uh, and then she started getting more and more visible again, talking about Scientology again. Uh, and then I wrote, uh, worked with her for a couple of years to get that book out. And then once the book came out uh, in uh, uh, May 2015, she went on a book tour with me. And we went out to California. We gave talks together. It was really fun. She lives in Florida with her husband, Paul. It's just a really delightful guy. And they're just the life of the party wherever they are. They're so fun. Uh, she's going to be turning, let's see, this year she'll be turning 75. Uh, and she looks great. She's, you know, the, the reason, where the title of my book comes from is she was a very, very pretty woman. And so in the, in the secret documents of Scientology's spy wing, the Guardian's office, her code name was Miss Lovely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's why I called her the Unbreakable Miss Lovely. And uh, and she's lovely today. She's she's a real kick in the pants. She's very funny. She's very you know she's got kind of a acerbic wit, and um, 
uh, you know, she's been, uh, she, she appeared on Leah's show, and we hope that uh, maybe somebody will want to make a movie about her. So, you know, we're, we're looking into things. Uh, you know, and is she still being hassled by, by the church? You know, what's really funny is, is one of the pleasures I had in that project was, uh, you know, really researching that stuff for the first time. I found a, a number of different operations that were running against her that she didn't even know about. <laughs> One of which was, um, you know, uh, we were we were having lunch one day, I think, uh, and we were talking, and she mentioned a reporter's name from a magazine in New York. And she was talking about, oh, yeah, whenever I'm in New York, I get together with him, and he always talk, asks me about Scientology. And she saw my jaw drop open. And she said, what is it? I said, you didn't know he's been outed as a Scientology spy? And sure enough, Marty Rathman and Mike Rinder had, had basically doxxed this guy and, and showed that that this particular magazine writer in New York had been on the Scientology payroll for years. And he was known for calling everybody up and asking them what they were working on, right? And never writing anything himself, okay? <laughs> and so uh, for years, when Paulette would go to New York, he'd take her to lunch and ask her about Scientology. And I said, don't you see? Scientology's been keeping tabs on you even today. And, and she, you know, it was really hard for her to accept. She hated the idea, but uh, now, now, she, now she tells people, yeah, they were spying on me just a few years ago. That's so, scary. yeah. 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 Now, uh, unless I'm mistaken about the person, did she not have a gentleman move in with her for about six months? And as it turned out, he was a spy as well. Right. During the worst, the worst year of her life, she will tell you, is 1973. She was she was indicted in May 1973 for those bomb threats I mentioned. And at that time, she was living on, a, on an apartment uh, building on the east side of New York. And um, they managed to get several spies uh, in her life. Uh, they moved a spy into an apartment upstairs from her, and then she brought in a friend named Jerry Levin. And he, when she was going through her work, in the summer of 73, she was in bad shape. She was, she was having a hard time feeding herself. I mean, she was so worried about being indicted. And one of the things that was tough for her was it wasn't public, right? She was facing trial and 15 years in prison, and the public didn't know. The, the newspapers had not gotten wind of it. And she was so worried that every day, if this is going to be the day, it's going to come out, my life's going to be ruined. So and, and things were getting so bad, Jerry offered to move in with her to help her out, and pay, help pay the rent, you know, keep the house tidy. And so she said yes. And so this Jerry Levin lived with her from May to September 1973. Uh, and it was only years later that she realized he was a Scientology spy. And one of the things, one of the things we set out to do was to try to figure out who he was and where he was. Because some of the people that had spied on her back in the day did talk to me about it. Uh, but, you know, the one I really wanted to find was Jerry Levin. And all of the other spies that I talked to from that era, they all told me Jerry Levin had to be a guy named Don Alverso. Don Alverso was like the ultimate super spy for Scientology. If you needed to break into a building, if you needed to do something that was really scary, you called Don Alverso. He was known for being a former combat pilot, a helicopter pilot in Vietnam, and he had ice in his veins. And so everybody told me, oh, it's got to be him. Well, the problem was Don Alverso was a fake name, too. <laughs> so, so how am I supposed to find this guy with a fake name? And, and the FBI didn't seem to know his real name. Well, oh my gosh. The, the way I got a break was that uh, Karen De La Carrier, who's a former Scientologist, she was also on Leah's show, she remembered that when she was married in, I think, 78, uh, one of her bridesmaids was Molly Alverso, Don's wife. 
And she, <laughs> and, she, and here's the best part, she knew Molly's maiden name. So with that, we were able to look up her marriage records, and she's been married to the same guy for 35 years. It had to be the guy. It had to be Don Alverso. Well, now I had Don Alverso's real name. And it turns out he was living in Long Island, not too far from me. And I, I tracked down, he, had, he was part of a family business, and I tracked down a photo of him that the, the, you know, the whole family put a picture of themselves online. From, and the picture was from 2002. So I took that picture, and I showed it to Paulette. And I, and I said, hey, Paulette, because so, I'm pretty sure I had Don Alverso, but now the question was, was this guy also Jerry Levin, the guy that had moved in with her? So I showed her the picture, and she said, well, what am I supposed to see here? I said, well, you don't see Jerry Levin there? She says, I see a big fat guy. I said, I know, but she needs, <laughs> she needs to subtract like 30 years and 50 yeah. pounds, right? And she said, no, nah, not really. I can't tell. Okay, that's not good enough. So then um, uh, there's a really good researcher named Virginia McClory, and she tracked down a photo of this guy when he first got his wings in the Army in 1968 because it turns out that the guy, the guy that we tracked down, and I tend not to use his name publicly because Paulette doesn't want me to, but uh, the guy that we're talking about, was a combat helicopter pilot. Don Alverso had told his friends he was a combat helicopter pilot, and Jerry Levin had told uh, Paulette that he was a Vietnam combat hel helicopter pilot. That, that was just to prove anything, but it, it's a nice consistency, right? And so now we had a photograph in 1968 of this guy getting his wings, and I showed that to my the other spies that I knew, and they said, oh, no question, that's Don Alverso. Where'd you get that picture? That's great, right? So then I showed, then I showed it to Paulette, and she said, hey, it's Jerry Levin. <laughs> I was like, oh, we did it, we did it. So then I called him up. And uh, it took me a while, it took me a few days to get him on the phone. And uh, I got him on the phone one day and I said, hi, you know, I'm working on a book about Paulette Cooper and I'm hoping enough time has gone by. Because this is the approach I use with everybody. I wasn't trying to condemn anybody. I wasn't trying to get anybody in trouble. I just wanted to hear from their perspective what they had gone through when they were spying on Paulette, Right. And, it, and I had I had been I had had some success with some people. Some of the some of the people still don't want to talk about it. Some of the people still hate her guts, right? But with this guy, with this Don, you know Don uh, Alverso, Jerry Levin, I said, listen, I hope enough time has gone by that you'd be willing to talk to me about Paulette and uh, you know Operation uh, Freak Out and and uh, Miss Lovely and the Guardian's Office. And he said, I'm sorry, what are you asking me about? And I said, I said, you know, the Guardian's Office, Church of Scientology, uh, the Snow White Program, Paula Cooper. He said, you know, I don't even know what language you're speaking. You must have the wrong guy. So I hung the phone and uh, I, I, I called up my best Guardian's Office source. Okay, this guy was totally plugged in with all those people, did his own operations. I described the phone call to him. He said, oh, yeah, that's Don. <laughs> <laughs> So if listeners are just now joining us, Tony, you they would swear that we were talking about the Cold War, KGB versus CIA. I mean, these guys are absolutely committed. Well, they use the same techniques. <clears throat> I mean, this the, the Guardian's office was a very sophisticated intelligence outfit that had more resources than, you know, some small countries, you know, and, and the Guardian's office made fools of the American government for years. I mean, they were breaking into the Department of Justice, Department of Justice, uh, IRS, uh, various federal agencies from 1974 to 77 with impunity. I mean, they were walking out with, with feet, 
you know, linear feet of records, uh, stealing documents from the government. So these guys were very sophisticated what they did. They were very smart that, you know, each person only knew what they needed to know, right? And so it was very, you know, it was very, very uh, sophisticated. And it was all orchestrated by L. Ron Hubbard and Mary Sue Hubbard. She ended up going to prison for it. Uh, she fell on her sword for her husband, L. Ron Hubbard. He was named an unindicted co-conspirator, but he never went to prison for it. So, so where is this going to go now? Because with so many people so committed to uh, the religion, as we say, um, how would it ever end? How is it ever going to work itself out? Well, I mean, church Scientology is in big trouble, and it has been for several years. I mean, uh, you know, it's dwindling, and it, it's um, the press is just brutal. I think governments are getting fed up with it. Uh, they, you know, they always claim to have millions and millions of members. It's never been true. I, I found a New York Times article from 1969 where they claim to have 15 million members. Today, they're more careful to just say millions. They won't say the number. But they put out an ad. They put out a TV ad in 2012 that claimed they were getting 4.4 million new members a year. All right? So just if you just if you went by that from 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 the last four and a half years, you're ta- they would they would there would be more Scientologists than, than Jewish people in America, right? If you went by those numbers, well, I don't know about you, but it's really hard to actually run into a Scientologist in this country, right? Because the truth is the numbers are minuscule in reality. The greatest the the greatest extent Scientology ever got was around the year 1990. They had about a hundred thousand people around the world. It's been shrinking ever since then. By 2008, some top former executives who had come out who had access to enrollment documents told me that they estimated that worldwide membership was down to about 40,000. The most recent top-level manager to come out, his name is Paul Burkhart, and he defected in August 2013. And I asked him, and I said, did you have access to the records? He said, oh, yeah, I saw them every day. I said, well, can you tell me how many active Scientologists there are in the world? He said fewer than 20,000 now. Wow. So uh, this thing is dying, and, but but on the other hand, David Miscavige is sitting on a mountain of liquid cash. He can spend it any way he wants. He spends it on private investigators and attorneys. So it's not going away, but it, they are they have definitely fallen on hard times. Yeah, given what you just said, eventually they're going to run out of money or they're going to have to raise their prices. Something's going to happen. There's going to, as 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 uh, Lawrence Wright said a couple of years ago when his book came out, you know, especially with these celebrities, a day of reckoning's coming. You know, they're going to have to answer these public questions at some point or another. Now, now this this may be a question out of left field, but we do know that L. Ron Hubbard wrote a series of science fiction novels. Is the money from current sales? still going towards the Scientology and and plus that I'm sorry for saying this and we can edit this out but that terrible movie Battlefield <laughs> Earth <laughs> oh it's now been recognized as the worst movie ever made I think just the other day just the other day there was some institute or whatever that decided that it is the worst movie made in human history yes, um, I'm sure I'm all sure John of, Travolta is not proud of that all of L. Ron Hubbard's novels are published by a wing a subsidiary of Scientology itself. So yes, the money for the money that he, that they make on this science fiction does stay within the Church of Scientology. Um, now, are you know they just re-released Battlefield Earth uh, this past year? Are they making a lot of money on it? I don't know. I mean, it's a terrible book, and uh, some people like it. And the worst movie ever made was made from it. 
Yeah. When when John Travolta, uh, I mean, there's a whole fascinating story about that movie. I mean, there was a producer named uh, I want to say Ali Samaha was his name, and his specialty, he would go to movie stars and say, "What's your dream project that you could never get made?" And 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 he had a lot of success with that because every every actor is walking around thinking, "I wish I could make a movie about this or that, but I can never get anybody interested in it." And for Travolta, it was Hubbard, right? It was Battlefield Earth, and that's how that movie got made. And when it was being made, David Miscavige was really excited about it becoming a way. See, they always try to spread Scientology, not always directly, but indirectly, by trying to, you know, the more they could get people talking about Hubbard or, or, or thinking that Hubbard was some kind of genius, the more they think people are prepared then to become Scientologists. And so this was definitely supposed to be a recruitment tool, was this movie. And as it was being made, Miscavige was really excited about it. Of course, then when it turned out to be the worst movie ever made, then Miscavige blamed Travolta, right? And Travolta has never been, you know, in his favor since then. Uh, that was what, the year 2000 was when that movie came out. Now, the U.S. recognizes the Church of Scientology as a religion. But I know that is, the U.K. doesn't. And some places it's uh, I, what is it? Australia it's even banned, right? So the, well, let's be let's be careful. The yeah. United States has granted Scientology tax exempt status as a religious organization. The, the United States of America cannot say that anything is a religion. It's that's it's unconstitutional. All they've done is say that Scientology is a tax exempt organization as a religious organization. Of course, Scientology then says that. Oh, yes, we're a bona fide religion according to the U.S. government. Well, that's not really true. Uh, they are considered a charitable, uh, I mean, they are, they are considered a, a church in England. They just, uh, they had a Supreme Court case about being able to perform religious weddings at their organization. But the interesting thing about England is they have that sort of status as a church, but they do not have charity status. So, yeah, they can call themselves a church and a religion, but they can't, they don't, they still have to pay taxes. So what they did was, in Australia, they do have charitable status, okay? And so the, the entire organization in England uh, goes by the acronym COSRECI, Church of Scientology and Religious Education something or other. Uh, COSRECI, the English outfit for all Scientology, has as its registered address uh, a place in Australia. And so they claim to then be, be able to not pay taxes because it's all Australian. It's a really bizarre situation. But yeah, country in, in, in France they've been convicted as a, a fraudulent business. Um, in Israel they cannot call themselves a church. Uh, in Germ Germany considers them a totalitarian organization. I mean, it really depends on the country. Um, but you know, the, the only two, the only couple of places in the world where it's not just totally crashing are places like Russia and uh, Hungary and Taiwan. I wonder why. A little bit in South and South, and Mexico, South America and Mexico. Um, but, you know, people there don't have a lot of money for it. And so you're, what you're seeing is, um, you know, fewer and fewer Americans are willing to sign the Sea Org's billion-year contract and work for 40 cents an hour. So a lot of the workers now in Clearwater, the base of Florida, are Eastern Europeans. And a lot of the workers at the Sydney uh, base in Australia are Taiwanese. So... Uh, I don't know, you know, how much longer in Taiwan are they going to be in love with this? I think what happens is it gets this glamour, not only as a um, celebrity thing, but as an American. Just the fact that it's American makes it attractive to certain, certain other parts of the world. Wow. Now, so are you still being um, bothered by uh, the church? 
it comes and goes. It comes and goes. And I, I always, with Miscavige, I always uh, use the Eye of Sauron uh, uh, analogy. Basically, um, uh, you know, he, he gets really upset about something that he's paying attention to, and they scramble and do something about it, and then his attention looks somewhere else. And so uh, I'll go for months without hearing anything or, or getting any kind of interference, and then all of a sudden it's just, you know, they're just all over me. And I'm realizing, oh, because Sauron looked my way. You know? <laughs> and so what happened was Miscavige called somebody and said, what are you doing about Ortega? What the hell is going on? You know? And then they'll scramble and you know, do some silly stuff. So just recently they tried something really stupid. I, I mentioned the other day on, on Leah's show that one of the things they'd done is they hired an out-of-work reporter to pretend that he was working on a scandalous story about my wife just to get her bosses freaked out. Because that's, that's something Hubbard taught them is, okay, if you've got an enemy, um, the best thing is actually to go after their loved ones because that will make them collapse, right? And so they've gone after her a number of times. And, they, you know, I mentioned that on Leah's show. I taped that in uh, October. Um, they tried that again since then, which is, on the one hand, you know, it, it, it's, it's not fun. But on the other hand, you think, yeah, but her boss has already went through this before. Why are you, you know, you're trying the same exact stunt twice? It doesn't make any sense. And that's, again, I think that that goes to the Eye of Sauron theory that when, when Miscavige puts pressure on them, do something, do something, they'll just try something stupid, you know, just, just to please him. So they do that and, and various other things. I mean, I, I mentioned on the show that they've, fought, they've been to my mother's house a couple of times and they've tracked, they've, certainly, they've uh, stalked me and my mom. And um, they, they, will, they will, I'll hear from people I haven't worked with in like 10 years and say, hey, Tony, I got this private eye calling me, asking all, all these questions about me, about you. And, and, and the key to that is, yeah, they're hoping that some guy I worked with 10 years ago will tell them some dirt about me or whatever. But really what's going on is they're counting on that person calling and freaking me out, right? And that's what they, they want that effect. They want that psychological effect that it just creeps you out. And it's effective. I've seen plenty of people who came out, they were exposed in the church, and they wanted to write about it, and then all of a sudden they go quiet. You're like, what's going on? It's like, well, you know. Yeah. It, it, they know how to creep people out, and, and, and you make that calculation. Do you do you want to put your whole family through this? You know, just because I want to write a story or something. So it's uh you know something that I I try to be careful. Uh, I try to always you know keep in mind what's going on and, and who I'm talking to. And what's you know, but but basically you know kind of like I said, it kind of comes and goes. What, what's your suggestion then for people that if if they if they feel they're being hassled by the church, what's the best reaction they can do then? Just ignore them. Yeah. Just do the best you can to ignore them. And you know, a couple of you know, when the when Leah's show was airing, they set up a website to put all this dirt about all of this up there. And each week they would put a new page for whoever was in the show, right? And some of it was really vicious and vile, you know. Uh, and I would talk to the person afterwards, and they'd be a little shaken. But then they knew that, you know what, it's just a kind of a badge of honor at this point. I mean, if, you, if you've been slimed by Scientology, you must be doing something right, you know? Yeah. So you just need to, you need to think that way uh, because, I mean, you know, this is an organization that counts on scaring people out of investigating them. Well, do you think that her show is going to have a, an impact, a large impact? Because so it's, far, it seems to have. 
It's definitely had a huge impact with the public in a way we've never seen anything. I mean, when HBO's Going Clear came out in 2015, it was the most watched HBO de- documentary in a decade. And you saw people talking about Scientology that never talked before, you know, hundreds and hundreds of press articles. It was great. It was, it was amazing. But Leah, by a weekly show, and the fact that it's A&E, it's not HBO, it's, you know, it reaches, you know, it's easier to see. Larger um, audience. And, and she is, she, she's getting one and a half million, one, 1.7 million people a week to tune in. And these are people, and I can tell because I, I, I watch the social media and I interact on social media with all these people. These are people that have never thought about Scientology, or even maybe they had the slightest idea, and they're outraged. I mean, they've, they've gone, they're going from maybe the slightest curiosity to full-blown, I'm going to write my congressman, I'm outraged about this, just overnight. And, and that, that's new. You know, and I think she's, there's something about, uh, what I love about it is, you know, in Going Clear, and, and you mentioned I'm, I'm part of that, uh, I thought Going Clear was a brilliant job by Alex Gibney and Lawrence Wright, but these are two journalists who have, you know, kind of a, uh, you know, they're outsiders looking in. There's something about Leah and her honesty and her grittiness and her language that's so real to people. They really connect with the way she's talking about this, that she's, she's angry that she has been fooled. And she wants people to understand what's really going on. People really connect with that. Uh, and then she's chosen people whose stories are, you know, just hard to believe. They're just, they've been put through so much and they, they're doing a really, a really, really good job presenting them. They're, I mean, it's a very simple situation. I mean, these are, these are people sitting on a couch talking. But the way that they're telling these stories, I think, is so effective. Uh, so, yeah, no question, she's reached a bigger public than ever. People are outraged. People want something done. Now, is, is, is anything happening inside the church? One of the things, to keep in mind is Scientologists are really good at ignoring negative information about Scientology. I I talked recently to a top high-level Scientologist inside the church who's a secret source of mine, and I asked him, I said, so the OTs that you know, what are they saying about this series? And he said, nothing. They're just completely ignoring it. So, I mean, that's what they're trained to do. I, yes. I, can t- I, I, know, I know that David Miscavige is not ignoring it, and they're panicked, I'm sure. But it's still, it's still to be seen if the government's going to do anything, if many more Scientologists are going to come out. It's, it's really hard to predict. Well, one of the things that is giving the show credibility is that she's not talking to somebody that just did it for six months or a year, and, yeah. oh, I, I didn't like it, and, you know, I moved on to something else. She's talking to folks that are 20, 30, 40 years into it. And gave up everything. And then when yes. they left... And then when they left, gave up uh, what little they had, you know, the family they had, uh, you know. I mean, they, when Mark Henley escaped, when Ron Miscavige escaped, um, when these guys left the base, well, particularly particularly Mark, because he was on a motorcycle, he had, they had nothing. They had nothing with them. They had to start life over again. And that's a story I think Mark and Claire are going to tell later on in their own book or something. But I was in Denver last, last year, and I... Uh, I was talking to them about this, and they have an amazing story about, okay, so you've escaped from Scientology, you were in Scientology for 25 years, uh, you have nothing, no driver's license, no insurance, no bank account. How do you start life over again at that point? What do you do the first day? And they told me what they went through, and it's amazing. 
And, you know, they're, you know, it's, it's a wonderful testament to them that they're such strong people that within a few months they were flourishing. And now, you know, uh, 10 years later, 12 years later, since they escaped, they've got three sons and they, you know, Mark's got a fantastic business. That's another story that needs to be told. I'll probably get into that at some point. But some of these people, not everybody does that well when they come out. But it's 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 just amazing they come out and they have nothing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I even look at the transition from um, Mike Rinder from 2007 when he came out to being on the show um, and him actually breaking down a few times. Um, it's it's amazing what what happens to someone when they see what they've done. That was an amazing moment. That was in the Mary Con episode, and I didn't. I was. I was really stunned by that. I told Leah that that was amazing television. And, and she said that they really debated about whether to include that or not. Um, but I saw, I'm sure glad you did because it was, I really believe it was 100% genuine. Mike is sitting there listening to Mary Collin talking about how they were spending all this money and going through all this interrogation and all this crap just trying to keep their family together. And Mike just loses it. And you know that it was a combination of, you know, he lost his whole family. He never got to see his mother again, and she died, and, and he didn't even, the only person, he had to be told by somebody else, not in the church, that his mother had died. Um, he's got grown kids that he can't see, and he also was part of that apparatus that split up families and enforced these rules, which is a heavy weight on him, and it all just came bursting out of him, and I think it was really genuine television, I think it was remarkable television, and I'm glad we got to see it. Yeah, I think it was very important. Um, because even the people that still had a negative impression on him at that time actually um, could see more how it works even on the other side for him. Well, I mean, believe me, there are still people who are angry at him and say that he hasn't said enough and he hasn't, you know, made up enough, and that'll probably always be the case, you know, because, uh, you know, Mike Rinder and and Tom Devot and Matt Pesh and Amy Scobie, are, are doing what they can to expose Scientology's abuses, and they all left in the mid-2000s. Um, but there are people that were just, you know, brutalized by Scientology in the 90s that have never had this kind of a, sort of a, you know, a vindication. And they're still angry, and they're saying, listen, Mike Render was part of the group that made my life impossible. Um, and they want, they want Mike to say more. I, you know, I... Look, I think I think what Mike Rinder is doing is remarkable, and I think I, I know that he has apologized to some people personally, but I think it, you know there are definitely are some people that feel that uh, Mike and some others have not gone far enough to make up for what they all went through. Yeah. Well, what would be enough? Yeah, I don't know. It's uh, I you know I listen. I've asked Mike tough questions. I've you know asked Marty Rathman tough questions and. Uh, um, I'm going to keep digging. I mean, I, I do want to revisit those uh, operations in the 80s and 90s and find out what I can. But I understand that Mike is on a mission right now to make up for some of the damage he did by exposing Scientology's controversies, and he's laser-focused on these you know, more current uh, you know, happenings and how to bring them to light. And I applaud him for it. I think he's doing a brilliant job. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's uh, it is a hard thing to, to 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 overcome and to actually do it all publicly like that. That's you know, it's amazing. Um, well, we've kept you um, 
much longer than we thought, but there's so much we could just, uh, just a crazy scenario. You know? It's good stuff, isn't it? It's fascinating. It is. It is. Um, I, I can't get enough of it, and <laughs> we're going to keep on going. Um, how do people get a hold of you? Comments. The, well, my website is TonyOrtega.org. It's called The Underground Bunker. And my email is listed there at the website. And also there's a page for my book, The Unbreakable Miss Lovely, which is uh, available at Amazon in paperback and also in uh, audiobook versions. And, uh, you know, uh, that's the best way to get a hold of me is my email on my website. And uh, I have a story every morning at the bunker at 7 a.m. Eastern, sometimes a second story in the afternoon. And we have a really great commenting crew there. I get about 1,000 comments per day on each story. Uh, and a lot of our commenters are longtime former Scientologists that are super knowledgeable. And if anybody has a question, they're there to answer it. Uh, it's a really, really great community. We even have a, we even have an annual convention for my little website. Uh, last year we had it in Cleveland, and we called it HowdyCon. I named it after a beloved beloved commenter who passed away who called himself Captain Howdy, and so we called it HowdyCon. <laughs> Uh, last year in Cleveland, and this year, June 23rd through 25th, we will be in Denver. So if you want to meet some of these crazy people that hang out at the Underground Bunker, we will be in, uh, in Denver having fun in June. And we could watch it on the Scientology channel. I'm sure they'll be filming. <laughs> <laughs> last year, we didn't have any problems. If there were any spies uh, with us, they drank with us, and we had a good time. And if they took pictures of us, oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> kind of becomes that way, doesn't it? Well, yeah, you know, uh, and and on the book, I'll say the Audible. I've just been starting doing those, and you do your own voice on that too. That's great. Yeah, I did my own. I mean, I told them that if they want to hire somebody, that's up to them. It was that was Audible's deal, and uh, they said no. If you want to read it, you can read it yourself. And so, yeah, I spent uh, three days in a studio on Seventh Avenue, and uh, it's it's harder than you think. I mean, you think, okay, I wrote this stuff, I can read it competently. But, um, you know, now I realize there are some words that I'll never use again because I can't say them. I can write them. <laughs> I can't. They're possible to pronounce. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, they had a very patient engineer there that helped me go over lines again and again, so I got them right. And it was an interesting experience. Well, again, uh, Tony Ortega has been our guest, and uh, uh, we've been talking about uh, Scientology and specifically his book, The Unbreakable Miss Lovely, and how the Church of Scientology try to destroy Paulette Cooper and uh, we have, have all that linked up on our site as well and um, thank you very much hey man thank, thank you for having me on guys thank you very much Tony now hear this I don't like the sound of that sound I think this is where everything finishes up we just may be at the end of the line don't forget to send me an email Alexa, do you have?